God, you alone deserve all the glory. You deserve all the fame. You alone deserve all the renown. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, of our very lives. God, I stand behind this podium, an imperfect man, speaking to imperfect people who make up an imperfect church. But by your grace and by your mercy, you have brought us here this morning to give glory and worship and honor to your son, Jesus, who through his blood and by his resurrection, we are now saints in your sight. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God, for who you are and for what you've done, we give you glory this morning. And it's in your name, the name that deserves all praise and all glory. Amen. You know, I have never been to the top of the Empire State Building. I've never been to the top of the rock. I've never been to the top of the observatory at One World Trade Center. And I'm not sure if that makes me more of a real New Yorker or less of a real New Yorker, okay? But it's something I'd like to do. I'd love to go to the top of the Empire State Building. It's something that I plan to do. Uh, But I've seen the pictures. And what I know is that when you go to the top of one of these buildings and you look out over the city, um, you're able to see the entirety of the city all at once. You're able to see it all. You're able to take in, so to speak, absorb the city all at one time. You know, we live at ground level and we know things about the city that are, you know, down to the detail and we know our street and we know our block. But when you stand up and zoom out, you see the whole city and you take it all in and you're able to see the little parts of the city in the context of the whole. Well, Ephesians is kind of like that. Ephesians is a book that takes us up and gives us an aerial view. It shows us, um, it, it shows us the entirety of God's plan for you and for me and for the church, for the world, for heaven. It shows us how for all of eternity, God has been sovereign and good. Ephesians takes us up and gives us a breathtaking view of God's great love and all that he has done to draw people to himself and why he alone is worthy of all glory and all fame and all renown. In Ephesians, one of the things it does, it takes us up and it shows us who we are because of what Christ has done for us, how he has saved us, how he has restored us, how he has forgiven our sins and cleansed us and given us a new name and a new future and a new life and and all those things. How he has given us a new identity that transcends our race, our class, our gender, our background, our personality, yet while at the same time deeply valuing those parts of us. The the book of Ephesians shows us how Jesus brings people together from every tribe and tongue and every nation and language and unites us all as one. No one better, no one worse. There's no hierarchy, but every tribe, tongue, nation, language around the throne of Christ. Some of the clearest doctrine in all of the Bible is found in Ephesians. Ephesians takes us up and it shows us, it gives us a view of who we are because of Jesus' grace and mercy. But it also takes us up and shows us how to live as followers of Jesus. Ephesians gives us an aerial view of what it looks like to be a Christian in this world. It addresses things like marriage, parenting, spiritual warfare. It addresses how to be a church that is diverse. 
and still, may it still be unified. We're a very diverse church. We have people of all ethnicities. We have people from all backgrounds. We have people from all socioeconomic class. We have people from all political persuasions. How do we exist together as one church under the banner of our Lord Jesus in a way that honors our differences, but yet we're all equal under God's sight? How do we, how do, we do that? Ephesians tells us. It's a deeply practical book. But Ephesians takes us up and it shows us who we are and how we live, and it shows us who God is. Ephesians, I, to put it this way, Ephesians is almost, it's like an aerial view of the New Testament. It's almost as if the whole New Testament was condensed into one book. You read Ephesians and it's like you grasp it all at once, what the, what the New Testament is trying to explain. It's, it, it's almost like, it's like a, I would say it's everything you need to know, but that's not true. It's like a, a basic crash course in Christianity. In fact, I almost titled this series Ephesians, subtitle, A Crash Course in Basic Christianity, sub-subtitle, Everything You Need to Know About Who God Is, How He Saves You, and How You Should Live in Light of All That. But... I thought that was too long to put on a thing. So we've settled for who we are and how we live because I think that sums up what Ephesians teaches us. And I want to begin this morning with the first two verses. Paul, this is who's writing the letter. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before I begin to teach through these introductory verses, there's something I think that is worth mentioning on the front end of this sermon series. And I want you to be thinking of this. I want this to be in the back of your mind as we work our way through this letter in the next several weeks. And the first thing is that, or the thing I want you to see is that Ephesians shows us, Ephesians gives us hope that the church is still worth our time and the church is still worth our energy and our resources and our love. We should love the local church, and Ephesians gives us hope that we can. See, in the New Testament, there are 15 churches mentioned by name in the New Testament. And all but two of them have letters written and dedicated to them in the Bible. So there's 15 churches that are mentioned in the New Testament, and 13 of them have letters written specifically to them, whether it's in an epistle in the New Testament, a letter, or whether it's in the book of Revelation where Jesus, sort of uh, through John, writes letters to seven churches. And in virtually every letter, the author, whether it's Paul, Peter, James, Jude, or Jesus himself, it, every one of these uh, letters, virtually all of them, are addressing a problem within the specific church in which they're writing. Read Galatians, the church in Galatia. They weren't welcoming to outsiders. They were making outsiders become like them. They were, it was a church steeped in legalism. It was Jewish Christians saying, if you want to be a part of our church, you have to become Jewish like us. When the scripture says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. But they were, they were forcing people to become Jewish so that they could become Christian. And Paul writes this letter, a Jewish man writes this letter, and he's like, no, 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 no. Paul is angry in Galatians. We studied it a few years ago. And he says, no, 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 you're distorting the gospel that Jesus came to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. The church in Corinth, ooh, Okay, read 1 Corinthians. They had some serious problems. You had sexual immorality just rampant among people within the church. One guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul writes the letter and he's like, you guys, he rebukes him. He's like, you guys got to stop this. This is damaging to the witness of the church and it brings dishonor to the name of Jesus. 
Colossians, they were believing things about the church in Colossae. They were believing things about Jesus and his teaching that were untrue and were harmful. And Paul writes that letter again, angry, but trying to show them who Jesus is and what they should believe. In virtually every letter, the author is addressing a problem. Here's what's important to remember about that. A lot of people will say, they'll get real angry with the church, whatever church they're a part of, and they'll go, I just wish we could go back to the way it was in the early church. I'm like, which one? Corinth? No. You want Galatia? No. Like, which one? The truth is, the church has always been made up of sinners who are redeemed by Jesus, but we're still sinners. So churches have never been perfect. And there's always been problems in the church, but Jesus still loves his church, still calls us his bride. But Ephesians is unique in sort of the scope of the New Testament, particularly at the time when this letter was written. There's no problem that Paul's addressing. Paul doesn't begin the, the, the letter by saying, here's, the, here's what you're doing wrong and here's why I'm writing this letter. He just commends them. He's like, you guys are faithful. He encourages them in their faithfulness. He encourages them in their doctrine. He's like, you guys, you guys believe the right thing. Let me just remind you to keep believing what you already believe. Your doctrine is right. He says, you guys are doing great. I want to encourage you. You guys are faithful. You guys have healthy marriages. You guys, uh, you're, you're parenting your children in the way of the gospel. You're honoring one another. That's good. Continue doing that. Let me just write this letter to tell you how to keep going, going and doing what you're already doing. And he writes this letter not to tell them to change anything, not to rebuke them, but simply to lift up the glory of God among them so that they can see Christ for who he is. Why do I make this point, though? Because many of you, and perhaps most of you, at some point have been hurt by a church. Perhaps you've seen hypocrisy within the church. Some of you have scars. The lucky ones of you have scars. Others of us have wounds that aren't quite healed yet. Uh, Church hurt is very real. I've experienced it too. Pastors aren't immune. In fact, I think pastors are on the front lines to experience the worst of it. I mean, I spent 90 minutes with my counselor this week talking about something that happened to me within the church in my teens that still affects me in the way I view God and the way I view Jesus' church. Church hurt is very real, and it can stay with us for a long time. And to those of you who have been hurt by a church, to those of you who have been hurt by church people, and to those of you who have been hurt by church leaders, many of you, or some of you are just frustrated with the seemingly endless and unending scandals and disappointments that come from the church and from celebrity Christians and all that sort of stuff. And many of you, you've experienced all of this, and there have been times in your life, or maybe even right now, where you're tempted to walk away from church. And you're tempted to walk away from, you may call it organized religion or whatever. Some people will say, I'm just going to walk away. I'm going to go do the church on my own. But that is always the first step to walking away from Jesus. You need the church. Many of you are tempted to walk away from faith altogether. But Ephesians gives us hope that the church is still a worthwhile institution. The very thing that we just sang about that was birthed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost still has meaning and purpose and something to say in the world today. The vision that Jesus had for the church, it's lofty and it's sometimes very difficult and honestly very few churches, if any, actually live up to the vision that Jesus really had for his church. This was true in the New Testament and it's still true today. But the church in Ephesus shows us that a healthy and vibrant and loving and caring church is possible. So don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. Jesus calls the church his bride. And he hasn't given up on his bride, so we can't either. 
See, the purpose of the letter to the Ephesians is not to correct a problem or rebuke some scandal, but to give glory to the God that gives this church its unique identity. That doesn't mean Ephesus is perfect. The book of Revelation, they get, they get dealt with a little bit by Jesus years later. The, the church in Ephesus isn't perfect, nor will we be on this side of heaven. But what it does mean is that we can, by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit's power, we can live up to our calling in this world. We can be a place of hope and refuge and mercy and integrity and care for weary souls in our city. Is that what you want? Isn't that what we want as a church? But for a church to be healthy, it must contain healthy Christians. You have to be healthy for this church to be healthy. If all of you are healthy, our church will be healthy. If I am healthy, our church will be healthy as a community. And it's important, therefore, that we know what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Paul reminds them in these first two verses, he says, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You want to know what it means to be a Christian, to be a saint and to be faithful. Paul says these Christians are two things. He tells them they're saints. He tells them who they are, they're saints, and he tells them how to live faithful, faithfully. Likewise, if Crossroads is going to be a vibrant church, in this city, we must know what it means to be saints who are in Brooklyn and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So let me explain what this means. First, he says, Paul tells us who we are. We're saints. We are saints who are in Brooklyn. Now listen, I am very, very, very grateful for many of my Catholic and my Eastern Orthodox friends. Okay? You know, we have a lot of Greek Orthodox in this neighborhood. I've made a lot of friends. But one area where I struggle with and differ from them is their understanding and their use of the word saint. Um, In these traditions, certain Christians are elevated to the status of saint based on their lives and their deeds. And I get it. We want to honor those who've served faithfully throughout history. It's good that we recognize and remember faithful Christians from the past. Christians like Augustine, like Francis of Assisi, like Patrick, who's going to get his own holiday next week, St. Patrick's Day. Even Mary and Joseph and the apostles, it's important that we remember them and we honor them and, we, and, we, and we, we celebrate them throughout history. It's good to do that, but to designate them with the title of saint while excluding that title from all other Christians is out of step with the pattern we see in the scriptures. Throughout the New Testament, every single person who confesses the name of Jesus is referred to as a saint. Paul, when he speaks, just about every letter, to the saints who are in Philippi, to the saints who are in Colossae, to the saints who are in Galatians, even the ones that are jacked up, to the saints who are in Corinth. Like, this is what he says, to the church in Corinth. Remember, these are the ones that are, this is the one that just rampant sexual immorality within the church. He says, to those in Corinth who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you become a saint? You call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that every Christian on this planet is to be called a saint. And many people will say, and I hear this all the time, and I get it, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I'm no saint. You know? There's a a coffee mug that I saw that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. (laughs) And, like, I get it, you know? Like, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, but I'm no saint. That's not what the Bible says about you. That's not what the Bible says about you. You may ask, well, how can that be? How can I be a saint? Like, isn't that what, like, Mother Teresa is? Like, I'm not her. 
Don't miss what I'm about to tell you because what I'm about to tell you, how you understand this and whether you understand this is the difference between works-based religion and true faith in the gospel of Jesus. A saint is a holy person, righteous, faithful, good in all their ways. In other words, no one is righteous, no, not one. There's only one who lives up to the title of saint, and that's Jesus himself. And you say, well, how in the world can I be a saint if Jesus is the only one who is truly good and truly righteous and truly faithful? How can that be true of me? I'm nothing like Jesus. And when I consider my past and my current struggles, I don't feel like a saint. But what happens, the scriptures say, when you place your faith in Jesus, it says that you are hidden in Christ. The phrase in Christ is used 27 times in the book of Ephesians and like a million other times everywhere else. You are hidden in Christ. And when God looks at you, that means he doesn't see what you've done. He doesn't see all that you did. He doesn't see all that. When he looks at you, he sees all that Jesus has done and says, oh, that's a saint. Because you're hidden in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures. He sees Jesus Christ in all his perfection. And what does he give you? He gives you Christ's reward. Abundant and everlasting life is given to you because you're awesome? No, because Jesus is. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When you give your life to Jesus in faith from that very moment on, you are not judged by God by your works and your life, but by the works and the life of Jesus. Um, I know we're a quiet church, but in some churches that's where people would like stand up out of their seat and shout amen and like run a lap around the building. See, many of us get so, that's good news! It's good news. Many of us get so discouraged in our faith because we try to find our spiritual identity in what we do. We get discouraged because we don't feel like our lives match up to what God wants for us. So we give up on spiritual practices and we give up on our faith or we pull back from God. But you must never forget, you are who God says you are. When God looks at you, he doesn't stack up all your sins and then shove them in your face. He stacks up all of Jesus' righteousness and says, now come and take, this is yours. No price, it costs you nothing. Jesus already paid for it. Come and take. He loves you like he loves Jesus because you are hidden in Jesus. You guys know the Muppet Man? Not the Muppet Man that lives on Drury Lane, but the Muppet Man. You guys know the Muppet Man? In the Muppets, when they need to go somewhere and they need to pretend they're humans, what do they do? They take a big trench coat and they get on each other's shoulders and they stack each other's up and they put on a big hat. And then they walk to the bank or they walk to the police station. They walk wherever they want to go and they fool everybody because they're, they're the Muppet man, right? You got like, they're hidden. And it's just, all it is is Muppets stacked up on each other with a trench coat around them, but everyone else is clueless. They think it's just some normal guy. This is. If you are in Christ, God doesn't see you in all of your sin. He sees Jesus in all of his perfection. Now, he's not fooled like an idiot, like Muppet Man people are. But when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see all your shame and your guilt. He's already taken that stuff away. He just doesn't see it. He sees Jesus. I read a story recently about a young man 
he had a very difficult upbringing. His mother basically rejected him. She didn't want him. And she was an alcoholic who would regularly go on benders and physically abuse her son. And when he was a boy, she said to him in a fit of rage, she said, things were just fine around here before until you were born. Your father and I were happy, but now you. And as a boy, he got the message. And his mother, he, he got the message. His mother wished he hadn't been born. And later when his parents divorced, he blamed himself. He didn't blame the alcoholism. He didn't blame the, their issues, but he blamed himself because he'd internalized what his mother had said about him. He was believing what she had said about him. And he started to think to himself, if he hadn't been born, then this wouldn't have happened. And that shaped, I won't go into the details, but that shaped who he would later became in life. And he saw himself as a bother. He blamed things that were outside of his control on himself. And he saw himself as a failure and as a drain on others. And he grew up believing those things were true about him. And it shaped who he became, sadly. He focused on the lies of his parents. On if so, and I just think if someone had been around to tell that young man that Jesus loved him. And that Jesus died for him. And that because of that, he has value before God. And his mother has her issues. And her issues are her issues. And the things she spoke over him had no, had no truth in them whatsoever. And they had nothing to do with who he really was and everything to do with who she was. But he chose to believe what his mother spoke over him. And we as Christians, we must choose to believe what God has spoken over us. Because his words do have meaning and they do have value. And what he says of us is not that he wished we hadn't been born, but it's that we have value and that we are loved. We are created in his image and we are worth so much to him that he sent his son to die on a cross so that he could purchase us back to himself. Next week we're going to talk about this. He adopted us at great cost to himself. You have value. And now what about you? Do you believe the lies that others or yourself say about you? Who are you? You are who God says you are. You're a saint. And what we need to do, this is a practice called preaching the gospel to ourselves. What we must learn to do is stop listening to how we feel and stop listening to perhaps what other people say about us and turn the volume up on what God says about us. Do you feel like a reject? Do you feel lonely and isolated, unwanted? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says you are chosen by God. Do you feel like you're all alone? Do you feel like an orphan? Chapter 1 verse 5 says God has adopted you as his child at great cost to himself. Do you feel like a slave to your past? Chapter 1 verse 7 and 8 says you have been redeemed from your past, forgiven of your sins by a lavish outpouring of God's grace on you. What is grace? Did you deserve it? No. He just poured it out on you because he loves you. Do you feel like you have no future? Chapter 1 verse 11 says that you have an inheritance waiting on you in eternity. Do you live in fear of rejection or do you live in fear that you're going to disappoint God? Chapter 1 verse 13 says that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and that seal cannot be broken. 
The Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit himself guarantees that all God says about you today is true and will be true tomorrow and the next day and the next day and forevermore. The Holy Spirit guarantees that God's mind will not change about you. You are who God says you are. You're a saint. Now, in light of that, how do we live faithfully to the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? So who we are, saints, how do we live faithfully? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. See, these Christians in Ephesus... The reason they lived such exemplary lives in their cities, and it was difficult. There was persecution in their cities because when they converted, you can read this in uh, Acts chapter 18, when they converted, it took a big big economic hit on the town because everybody was practicing magic. They converted to Christ. They threw away all their magic books and they stopped going to the sorcerers and the wizards and all that stuff. And And these guys went out of business and everybody got mad at them and they experienced persecution, but they remained faithful. How were they able to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, all of that. How? Because they knew who they were. They knew they were saints and they were faithful. And this is an, there's an important structure to the letter of Ephesians that we're going to learn over the next several, uh, several weeks. And I almost did two separate series, like Ephesians part one and Ephesians part two, because the first three chapters of Ephesians, th- there's no command. There's no commands for three chapters. There's no, you should do this, you should do that. There is for three chapters, there is nothing but gospel truth about what Jesus has done for you on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the first three chapters. Then chapters four through six, the last three chapters are about, okay, now that God, you know what God has done for you, this is how you should be a husband. This is how you should be a wife. This is how you should be a parent. This is how you should be a child. This is how you fight. This is how you fight your battles. You know that song? This spiritual warfare. It's like in light of what has been said in the first three chapters, what God says about you in the gospel, now you live in light of those things. And many times what we do is we reverse the order. We believe that in order to be loved by God, we must live a certain way. Then we can be accepted. But the structure of this letter shows us that our order is mixed up and that we must first find and rest in God's acceptance of us, then live in obedience to Christ, not out of fear that he'll reject us, but out of joy and gratitude that he's already accepted us. Another way to say it, and I say this all the time, and right now you may be thinking, didn't you just preach this sermon like two weeks ago? Yes, but we repeat, this is learning, this is how we learn, repetition. The Christian life is becoming who God has already declared you to be. It's not, if I live a great life, I might one day be a saint. If I have a you know, posthumous miracle, I can be a saint. No. It's God has called me a saint in Christ, and I'm going to live my life in a way that is true to who I am. When I was in high school, I was on the track team. And we showed up to practice one day. And at the beginning of every season, we would always get new T-shirts that we would have to wear. You know, my coach was one of those old school guys, but he made us wear the same thing. We had to dress as a team everywhere we went. And so we walked to practice the first day and there's a bunch of boxes and we open it up and he's like, this is the shirt you're going to wear at every, you know, public function you do when you serve the community. This is the shirt you're going to wear at every meet. This is going to shirt you're going to wear at all the award ceremonies. This is the shirt you're going to wear when you get your picture taken for the newspaper. You're going to wear this shirt. You're going to have it with you at all times. And we're like, all right, great, cool. And, you know, we open the box. We open the box. He pulls out a shirt. It says Scottsboro Track and Field. And that would seem normal, 
but the shirts were blue. And we're like, why are the shirts blue? Our colors are black and gold. I said, Coach, did they send the wrong shirts? He said, no, we got blue shirts this year. I'm like, why? Coach, our colors are black and gold. Why do we have blue shirts? He said, because blue is the color of the state championship trophy. He said, and you guys are going to be state champions this year. And we're like, Coach, that's kind of cocky. Like, we're going to wear these to meets. People, there's going to be a target on our back. He said, good, and you need to live up to what those shirts say about you. And for the rest of that season, every workout we ran, every meet we went to, we conducted ourselves like state champions because our coach and those T-shirts that we wore had declared that we already were long before the state championship was run. And we won the state championship that year by 50 points. Yeah, give it up for Scottsboro Track and Field. Uh, The next thing I'm going to say, I'm a Mets fan, so this is going to be really painful. You know why the Yankees have so many titles? You know why they have so many World Series championships? It's not because they're stacked with talent. (laughs) You know why they have so many titles? Because there's an expectation in being a Yankee. I mean, you listen, anytime some big-time player signs their free agent contract with the Yankees, it's always the same thing. They said that they put those pinstripes on, and there is a sense of, there's a sense of respect that they show those pinstripes that they didn't show when they were wearing, you know, those brown jerseys from the Padres. There's a sense of respect and there's honor because they know that there's a past. They know that the people that have worn that uniform, those pinstripes, Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, Mariano Rivera, my favorite Yankee of all time, and I do not like the Yankees, but I like him. But they all say the same thing. Players all say the same thing. When you put those pinstripes on, there's a new expectation of you. When you put on the pinstripes, you're expected to be a champion. I wish I could say the same thing about the Mets, but they don't have that attitude. I mean, listen, like, all, I'm, I'm having all, we're, I'm texting all my buddies, Mets fans. Our attitude is, man, we got a great pitching staff this year. Our offense seems healthy. Not sure about this new manager, but like, we've got all the pieces to make a run. But you know what we're all saying? I just, what's going to happen? When's the bottom going to fall out? How, what's going to go wrong this year? That's how the Mets view, that's how Mets fans view the season. And so many of us live our Christian lives like we play for the Mets and not the Yankees. But we walk around like we've already lost. Or like we can't win. Or like whatever went wrong last week is just going to keep happening. But God says you're a saint. And when you put on Christ, the book of Colossians says we put on Him and we clothe ourselves in His righteousness. Paul says in Ephesians that we are hidden in Him. When you put on Christ you are called to become who you are. That's the message of the gospel. That God has called you a saint. He has called you by name. He has adopted you. He has given you an inheritance. He's given you a future. He's given you a new name. He's already done that in Christ if you trusted in Him. Now you're called to live into who you are. Let's pray.